Hello and welcome to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. Today I'm joined by the bookshop's publishing director, Krista Halverson, to talk about a fabulous project that she's been working on and to unveil a very special gift bundle just in time for the holidays. Krista, welcome to the podcast. Hello, Adam. So normally on this show we discuss newly or at least recently published books. Today, however, we're going to talk about Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame. Now, this is because we have just published our very own special edition of the book in collaboration with Penguin Classics that's available exclusively through the bookstore. So I guess what I want to begin is by talking about your encounter with the book itself. Had you read The Hunchback of Notre Dame before embarking on this project? No, I hadn't. And I get the sense that's probably true for a lot of people. It was certainly true for me and I think for most people at the bookstore, to be honest. But I think a lot of us feel maybe as if we had. Um, I may have to say, I haven't even seen any of the movies, not the Lon Chaney, not the, the Disney, have you? Hands up, me neither, no. Yeah. And yet, I feel I know the story. Absolutely, like if somebody had asked me to recount the story of the Hunchback of Notre Dame, never having been exposed to the narrative <laughs> in its entirety, I would have felt great confidence in, in recounting uh, the story to, to the person asking. Yeah, which in a way, I guess, is testimony to the position that this book occupies in world culture, in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's really, and mention this to you, that it's almost even moved to the land of fairy, the realm of fairy tale, yeah. in the way I think that we around the world mm-hmm. understand the story and interact with the story. I mean, just look at the the name of one of the characters, Quasimodo, yeah. uh, and how that has just entered the lexicon, particularly in English, um, and describing someone or something. Like, we would all know... If someone said Quasimodo, I think most of us would know what that referred to. So let's talk about why we chose to publish The Hunchback of Notre Dame. So as I mentioned, this is a collaboration with Penguin Classics. And of course, Penguin Classics have a huge range of world literature that we perhaps could have collaborated on. So why why The Hunchback? Well, we were really fortunate that Penguin came to us and asked if we'd be interested in creating... Uh, a special Shakespeare and Company exclusive edition of one of the books in their catalog. And so it was uh, myself and David Delaney and Sylvia Whitman, the, the owners of the bookshop, uh, along with Linda Fallon, our head book buyer, who really had this brainstorming session of like, you know, of course we wanted to work with Penguin, um, but what book were we going to choose? And I think, uh, yeah, we were really spoiled for choice. And there's all different kinds of thinking on it, but you know, one of the things about being in Shakespeare and Company, Shakespeare and Company is really this place where English, America, I should say, like English language cultures, Anglophone cultures meet French culture. And that's such a fun and interesting thing to explore. Um, and as the director of publishing, I've thought about various projects that we could do that that really are right in that center point, because I think it's something Shakespeare and Company can talk about with, I don't want to sound like protection, but, but with some authority. You know, it's, I mean, it's really where the shop has lived now for the past 70 years. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So to me, it was really interesting to do um, a French title. And also, there's a quite utilitarian reason for this too, which is any French title for us to make a new translation, to commission a new translation. It's incredibly expensive, you know, outside the realm of what an independent bookshop could afford. Incredibly labor intensive, both in the amount of time that one would have to give the translator specifically for a book of this length, which is 500 pages. Um, And because we would really want someone here on staff who 
themselves was able to look at the translation. And now having worked um, on a book of poetry and translation that you know, you and I will probably be meeting again next spring to discuss for everyone. Yes. Um, you know, I just seen it with a poem that's that's on one page. I mean, that that takes hours and hours. So when thinking about five hundred pages, and particularly a, a text from eighteen thirty, and having to deal with like the older language, I mean, it just would have been a really grand project and very very expensive mm-hmm. for the bookshop and. You know, as pe- most people understand, like printing a book originally yourself requires so much money and upfront costs, both for the editors, in this case, the translators, um, but really in, in printing costs as well. And as people might know, that the cost of paper, mm-hmm. like everything in the, the world right now, there's a scarcity post uh, post COVID, and, and the prices have really shot through the roof. So, not to go off on all the nitty gritty <laughs> details of it that that go through my head as, as somebody who works in that publishing side of things and has those sort of production considerations. Um, but so it's like this, when Penguin came to us, I realized like this is a great opportunity to do a French language title because there's already a really, really wonderful translation by John Strzok that already exists um, and has been vetted by penguin yeah. you know and generations of readers <laughs> and generations of readers yeah i think the the translation is from the 70s mm-hmm. but i i say but there but <laughs> to mm-hmm. me in reading it it it's, it's feels very contemporary it really while maintaining the time and the essence of hugo's writing i think it's very it's very readable mm-hmm. for people today and when i when i'm saying to you like the translation holds up specifically what i have in mind are some of hugo's jokes and how they were translated and uh, truly like I laughed out loud Uh, several times in this book I don't know if you had that experience I did I mean it was much funnier than I was um, I mean it was just funny yeah yeah, yeah. (laughs) I didn't expect it to be funny (laughs) it's it's I mean that's the thing I was going to get onto is about how or if and how it confounded your expectations because when when this project was undergoing I read it as I said for the first time and it was a completely different book to, to what I was expecting. Like, the, the grist of the plot that we all somehow, through some sort of cultural osmosis, know was there. But it was so much more than that as well. So how did it confound your expectations? Well, just like like you said, it's, um, it's so unlike what I anticipated. And one of the things which the people out there who've read the, <laughs> read the book will know is the real central action of... The Hunchback of Notre Dame that we know it uh, that we know with um, Quasimodo and Esmeralda and Quasimodo shackled in front of Notre Dame and Esmeralda brings him some water and then this begins this love affair this kind of Beauty and the Beast uh, mm-hmm. love affair and then there's Phoebus and there's Claude Frollo you know all the bad guys so I don't think I knew all their names before sure. I started reading but mm-hmm. I knew who the players were and the number one thing that will surprise new readers to the text is that that story really does not begin until around page 180 right (laughs) (laughs) this 500 page book now i think we need to be careful here because we don't want people to think my god it takes a while to get going because in a sense that part of it does Mm -hmm. but the thing that really struck me was how fascinating those first 180 200 pages are which is essentially a in many ways a guide to paris of the 
14th century. 15th century. 15th century. It's, it's 14. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it takes place in 1482. I think that's mm -hmm. one of the, the first lines of the book. Do you mind if I just open yeah. it here? And Well, yes, because he says, the, the very first line is, 348 years, 6 months, and 19 days ago today, the people of Paris awoke to hear all the church bells in the triple enclosure of the city, the university, and the town in full voice. Not that the 6th of January, 1482, is a day of which history is kept in record. And which now, you know, just that aside, like I think that's a lot of the point of um, Hugo's book is really to capture all of Paris from the, the king to this street gypsy mm -hmm. dancer and everyone in between. And in fact, like the original title, well, the title in French of the book is Notre Dame de Paris, 1482. I think the thing that really struck me, and this is talked about in the introduction to the book, is that how so much of that Paris that we encounter of 1482 was still around in Hugo's day and is still around today. Yes. So you can quite literally take the Hunchback of Notre Dame, walk out of the bookstore with it, and guide yourself through to, let's say, Châtelet, picking yeah. up on certain landmarks that uh, were there in 1482, were there in Hugo's day Absolutely. and are still there today. Absolutely. And that was something, you know, when I when I first started reading it, I had lots of loves. Before we started talking, I looked back at my original copy of the book and all my little notes and questions. The first thing that really interested me personally when I was reading the book um, was locating where the characters are in the actual Paris that I know today. Because Hugo's very specifically places characters in different locations, like the Palais du Justice, the um, Place des Grèves. Yes, I apologize for my French accent. <laughs> this is how it's going to be. Um, and so in reading, I really wanted to understand in my head exactly where they were. So I found myself noting things and, and, and looking them up and particularly in uh, chapter one of book of book two, uh, we follow this character, the poet Gringoire, as he's making his way uh, through th this the right bank, you know, now between like the Seine and Châtelet Léal, um, and eventually making his way to the Court of Miracles, yes. uh, which now would be around like uh, Rue Réaumur et uh, Sébastopol, yes. is my yeah. understanding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So what was, what was really fun about this project was, for the first time ever, getting the opportunity to write and work on the introduction yes. uh, and give that to readers the introduction I would have wanted to yeah. have uh, read myself. Um, because that's it's, it's quite a challenge actually to write an introduction to a Shakespeare and Company book because mm -hmm. our readers come from all over the world. Our readers might be encountering this book for the first time. They might have read it, uh, you know, four or five times before. They might yeah. be specialists. We have such a sort of diverse selection of visitors. How, how did you find a way in to the introduction? Well, you know, I suppose it was what I was saying. In, in the end, wrote the introduction that was... Uh, of interest to me and here you know is where if we disclose to readers that you also worked yes, <laughs> readers <yeah. laughs> all listeners uh, that, that you also worked on the mm -hmm. on the introduction yeah and, and I think one thing we talked about when when we were working on it was very much this idea of sort of layers of history yeah. in a way because like what can the the bookshop 
bring to an introduction that a Hugo scholar can't, yeah. for example. Um, and and I, that, yeah. just sorry to interrupt, and that was really a choice that we made too, was to have the introduction from the perspective of the bookshop and not to commission an academic mm -hmm. to write about it. And of course, there have been wonderful scholars and writers who have addressed Hunchback of Notre Dame. I'm thinking of uh, Graham Robb is, is somebody who just jumps into my head. Um, but so we wanted to provide something that was specific to, mm -hmm. to the bookshop. And so, yeah, and I think what was uh, especially, I'll use the word exciting for me when I was reading the book is, you know, I've been working for Shakespeare and Company for 10 years now. So it's actually a Katia that I'm quite familiar with. Yeah. And, and so those, so as I was reading it, I was mapping out where we were and what's, and also what struck me so fascinating is because Hugo, as he's writing, he's very much engaged in interacting with this layer of time between the 15th century and his own 19th century. But in reading it, we as the readers actively, unconsciously or not, add a third layer yes. to it, which is our contemporary understanding. So when you're reading the book now, like you're really seeing like these all these three layers and because the book is still you know just successful in the terms of like how it engages the reader you're instantly pulled into these sort of questions and feelings that Hugo was purposely laying out before readers you know now almost 200 years ago yeah absolutely just picking up on that idea of the the neighborhood as well because uh, that was one thing that um, that really struck me like if we're writing an introduction from I guess the role of the neighbor of this cathedral, of, yeah. of, of, you know, where this where this novel is set, it allows you to put in things that only a neighbor can know in a way. So the one one thing that really struck me was uh, he talks about uh, Rue de la Huchette, which mm -hmm. is essentially the street that connects Saint Michel to the bookstore. Like that, if a lot of tourists and visitors to the bookstore will come down that street. And he talks about these cyclopean roasters, uh, like meat turning on spits. And if you go down that street today, you have a lot of what are known as sort of Greek restaurants where they're selling kebabs. And you have, you know, where, where are we? 600 odd years later. More, hang on. No. 600. Almost 600. Almost 600 mm -hmm. years later. You have the same kind of forces at work, the same kind yeah. of smells. The, you know, the, you can trace the line between our day, I'm sure between Hugo's day and between the time he's writing about. And I think those kind of insights in a way were what we wanted to bring to the the introduction as well the sort of thing which perhaps a scholar who might know all about the cathedral and all about the history might miss because as you say they haven't spent the last 10 years of their life roaming these particular particular yeah. streets and even just the people on, you know in addition to that uh just the people on the streets too i mean you have in this book there's a chapter that follows these women who have come from the countryside so essentially you have these tourists here you have the deacons and the mm. priests and the people who are working yeah. at the cathedral. The students. The students mm. from the Sorbonne, the local merchants, and then the buskers or street performers. Yes. I mean, you really, in reading it, you're like, this is exactly what it feels like to step out of the bookshop or step out into mm. these streets each day. And, and that sort of neighborhood connection, in a way, between the cathedral and the, uh, the bookshop is very much brought to evidence on the, the cover of the book itself. 
Um, now, uh, for this episode art, I'll put up uh, an image of the cover so listeners will be able to look at it immediately. Um, but Krista, would you be able to talk a little bit about how this beautiful cover came to, to pass? Yeah, so ag again, as we mentioned, we were working with Penguin and, and they were the ones who recommended uh, the cover artist Neil Gower to us. And for those who are familiar with Neil's work, I mean, he's just really an incredible talent. And what he's able, he can do almost anything. I swear, he's like a book cover illustrating magician, like yeah. <laughs> the genius. Because like, um, there's so much diversity in his work, yet each one is so beautiful and compelling. You would assume that this, it's the only style he works in, because you think, oh, you couldn't, he couldn't possibly be able to do anything else, and yet he seems to be able to do everything else. And I'll just mention also a very lovely uh, person as we've gotten to know Neil and and hosted in the bookshop as he's worked on this project for us, um, as well as another project, which we can meet again in spring for that one, or maybe summer. <laughs> um, so we were so fortunate to work with Neil, and and we had had the idea, and we'd gone to Penguin with this idea of the wraparound panoramic cover of seeing Notre Dame on the front, seeing the bookshop on the back, which, of course, the, the first question then is, how do you have Quasimodo and Notre Dame from the 15th century and the bookshop on the back cover? And to me, it was the, the, the perfect thing because it gets into this layering of time. And this, as you're reading the book, how you are in three places at once. And I liked the idea of the cover reflecting that. And it's also something I knew we were going to discuss in the introduction. Um, and so it allowed us to... to you know, sometimes when you, I don't know if I want to say this, but sometimes when you get into book covers that they be, they're so accurate that they lose that that magic. Right. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And they don't spark the, the imagination of the person who's looking at it. Yeah. And here I think it's so beautifully illustrated, but there's also something slightly mysterious about it. So you have this wonderful sort of um, impossible view <laughs> over Notre Dame onto the city and you see that there's Quasimodo there but then you also see that there's an Eiffel Tower uh, and then in the back you see that there's the bookshop yeah, and modern cars on the street yes exactly yeah, yeah. Um, and I'll say too on the back cover you have this one little rowboat um, which is another something else from the narrative so we have Quasimodo and then on the front cover and then something from the end of the book on the back cover which Hopefully people read the book and and get to and appreciate some of these little bells and whistles that Neil has put into the illustration. Now, as you said, Neil is quite quite the genius. And I was lucky enough uh, a few days ago to be able to speak to Neil about uh, his work generally, but also the specific process of uh, conceiving and producing the, um, the cover art for our edition of The Hunchback of Notre Dame. And I began the conversation by asking Neil if he could tell us a little bit how he came to work as a book cover artist. Well, yes, indeed. I mean, I, I kind of came into the world of books because I think I've, when I was growing up, I always loved um, like drawing and painting. Um, and I found that the, I, the kind of drawing and painting I enjoyed doing most was when I could combine words with images because mm. I, I felt that the words might detract attention from what I saw as my suspect drawing and, and vice versa. Um, and I'd always loved um, atlases and I'd always loved books. Um, so I, I 
I grew up drawing my own illustrated maps and I, I and I guess kind of kind of book covers. Um, so that that's that's how I. I, don't, I was also an avid reader, of course, so that 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 helped. So, I I grew up aware of the possibilities of distill, distilling words into images and how images sit beside words, which mm-hmm. of course is what book covers are all about. The, yeah, the images on the cover sit beside not only the words of the title and the author's name, but they sit beside the words within the book. Um, yes, and need to be a distillation. And an an appetizing distillation of um, of the, the words in the book. Well, that's the thing, isn't it? Because we, uh, you know, we know the old adage: never judge a book by its cover. And yet, we also know from bookselling the how important the cover is to for for selling a book, but also for for representing the book, for kind of giving uh, almost an atmosphere to the reader before they before they launch into the text. Well, it, it is, and I, when I'm designing a book cover, although I'm commissioned by generally by um, the publisher, um, I always feel as if my first duty is to the author, um, mm. and it, it was wherever possible I will I will read the book. Um, and the best way I can describe the process is that I find myself looking at the book as a three-dimensional entity, um, mm. and not 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 the physical object. I mean the the structure of the language. Um, and I generally, through listening or reading for recurring motifs or imagery or um, whatever, I, I try and find what I see as the kind of visual centre of gravity of the book. There's somewhere right. within that three-dimensional structure that I know. It doesn't give me the solution, but I know that's the point to pick away at. Um, mm-hmm. And then generally um, successful covers um, are, are, to be found, are to be found there. Well, before we get on to talk about your the beautiful work you've done for, for us in our new edition of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, could you tell us a few of your favourite designs that you've done over the years that some of our listeners might be able to find? Well, I think, the, um, I, I think one of the best known pieces I've done is um, I, I, I rejacketed all of the William Golding titles yes, for, yes, yes. Um, for Faber and Faber and that and I, the first one I did was the Lord Lord of the Flies and I hadn't really done mm-hmm. many book jackets then um, and that was a bit like being entrusted with well, it felt a bit like entrusting the crown jewels to someone uh-huh. with a history of petty theft um, <laughs> it, was, it was quite 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 terrifying and um I think it was the 50th anniversary publication. It was right. 2004. And they specified that they didn't want any of the um, cliches like broken spectacles or pig's mm. heads or um, any, any of those um, things that we're all acquainted with. Um, and I, I eventually found a solution in an Aboriginal painting. Um, right. and, I, I, and I created a kind of abstract pattern out of it. So that, that's the one that your you know, readers probably will be most, will be most aware of. Absolutely. And um, I mean, particularly, yeah, readers in the UK. I think anybody who's read that book over the last, um, well, I can't remember, well, I don't know when exactly it was you did it, but like that has become for me anyway, and the fast of the bookstore, the iconic jacket of, of this particular Well, I think book. it has. And I, I worked quite closely with William Golding's daughter on all the titles. Mm. Um, and, and she still says that, that that's one of her, that that's one of her favourites, which is, you know, obviously that makes me that makes me immensely proud. And the, the other interesting thing about that is that my my son, one of my sons was given a copy of that at school um, one day. And he said that they'd spent the break time um, discussing whether 
his father had a cool job or not. <laughs> and what did they? What was well? The I, I didn't. I didn't ask for the, the just the fact that it was in some. It gave room for discussion. Was it was it was enough for me? I didn't really want to know the final verdict. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other ones I I, I think of, which um, are more recent, but again have become quite sort of definitive of the series, is when you rejacketed the the Bill Bryson. Exactly. Uh, yes. Books. Yeah. And and I think also if our if our um, listeners look those up, they will see really the range of your work, actually. Like they're sort of, you know, it, I remember when I discovered that you had done both and realised these are such different ideas, such different yes. styles. Well, I think if you, there, there probably are quite a few lurking in, in Shakespeare and co that are my covers that people wouldn't recognise instantly. I mean, I tend to be very, um, I work in a variety of styles, mm-hmm. um, mainly because I think it seems like a good survival mechanism that, yeah, I, I figured that you know I I don't think of what I do as a career. It feels like a joke that's got out of hand over many years. <laughs> and I've lived in fear of being caught out, and I, I figured that if it was hard for people to hit a moving target, so if I, my work <laughs> changed a lot, and it makes it more interesting, makes it more interesting for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the you know, but both they capture something of the the. I think the the Bill Bryson covers because he has a a constant voice in a way that, say, William Golding didn't. His novels are all yeah. very, very different, um, set in different um, time frames and structurally very different. But Bill Bryson has a, a constant voice that people know. Um, so the Golding covers are more varied in, in that respect, but the, Bill, the Bryson covers have a more recognisable style. Yeah. I think it's interesting that it, this probably applies to what we're going to talk about in Notre Dame as well, that the thing I'd say about de- designing a cover for the Lord of the Flies and being able to avoid um, some of the cliched imagery is that there's a, there's a huge difference between designing a, a cover for a classic book right. and for a book that's just been published that nobody knows because, yeah. you know, the expression... Lord of the Flies has fallen into day-to-day usage in the England, and even people who haven't haven't read the book know exactly what it means. Mm-hmm. And anyone who's been to a children's party knows exactly what <laughs> <laughs> it being like Lord of the Flies is. So, um, when you're thinking purely about the cover of the book, the the, the, the title of the book will be doing a lot of the work. It, um, when, when you come to design for a classic, in in yeah. a way that. So that gives you a bit more latitude to be oblique and to do something slightly yeah, yeah. different. Um, whereas if you're designing a cover for a book that's just been published, you have to be a bit more—I don't know—I would say more explicit, but you have mm. to work harder to convey um, right. the, the essence of the book because that won't be known by somebody browsing in the shop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, let's let's talk about the the Hunchback of Notre Dame. And so, when you were first approached uh, to be the, uh, the the cover designer for uh, for the Shakespeare and Company Penguin Classics collaboration, um, had you read the book? Did you? Uh, what was your first reaction? No, I hadn't read the book, but I suppose it falls into that category I was just describing. It's a book everybody feels everybody feels they know. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was it was wonderful because I, I think I'd, I'd done a reading at Shakespeare and Co. Mm. or been interviewed by you a, a few years previously with uh, Alex Preston for that's, that's, that, that, when Kingfishers Catch right. Fire. So, yeah. um, so I, I was I was honoured to be asked, um, and as, as always, this feeling never goes away, even after forty years of doing this. It's slightly intimidated um, uh. feeling. I'm not quite sure how I'm gonna how I'm gonna, going to going to cope with this. 
Um, but yes, I, I, I felt honoured, you know, mainly to be working with, with Shakespeare and Co., which is a, a place that I, I love. So for, for, our, for our listeners who haven't yet seen, um, seen the cover, um, perhaps you could, uh, you could present it to them. Could you just give us a quick description of, what, uh, of, of the concept and how the, how the, how, how the cover turned Yes, out? well, obviously it was, well, I, I, I assume that the, 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 the idea behind publishing Hunchback of Notre Dame was because of the shop's proximity mm. to, the, uh, to the building itself. Um, and when I was reading the book and reading about it, I became aware of how important the the actual cathedral is in the story, um, mm-hmm. because we've come to know it as the Hunchback of Notre Dame. But of course, when it was originally published, it was called Notre Dame de Paris, um, which again is something I've found interesting subsequently, is that in English it's called the Hunchback of Notre Dame, but here in Germany it's just Der Glöckner von Notre Dame, which is the bell ringer of Notre Dame. Huh. So it's interesting how the yeah, yeah. various titles, you know, again, I'm thinking in terms of a cover, how the title that appears skews what one might expect, because mm-hmm. the English very focuses on the hunchback. Yes. Um, and obviously there's so much in the book, there's so much architectural description and celebration of the the glory of um, Notre Dame that Hugo is obviously terrified was um, going to be um, wasn't going to survive. Um, it really felt like a a celebration of that. So obviously mm-hmm. the, the the those two facts, the proximity of the shop and the fact that the architecture played such a huge part. Um, just lent itself to having a, a panoramic view with the, mm. the shop visi- uh, visible across the uh, across the spires of the mm. towers of, of Notre Dame, and mm. then of course that gave me the chance to place Quasimodo. Yes, on, on and we will we will come on to him. But just staying with that panorama for the moment, one of the things I love about it in relation to the book is that I think you're absolutely right that the it we find out how important the cathedral is in the book but also how important a cathedral is to the city at that time yes. and so to have the cathedral and then to have this panoramic view over essentially the entire left bank of paris yes, yes. Uh, just feels what you spoke earlier about capturing the essence of a book and that really seems to seems to speak to what the book is about yes and obviously in, in the the introduction to the book they it refers to how so how much you experience walking around that part of Paris hasn't essentially changed for many years. I mean, obviously, buildings and traffic and everything has changed, but the experience of people frying food and hustle and bustle hasn't really changed in all that time. Um, and I think, obviously, the, the, the Eiffel Tower is there in the background and it's, there's traffic on the road, so it's kind of anachronistic in that, yes. in, in, in that kind of sense. Um, but that, that just adds to the enjoyment of of doing it really i was also interested it struck me that the you know the, the cathedral in the book with the lot the long descriptive passages it reminds me the, the cathedral feels a bit like the whale in moby dick where it's mm. it's kind of a this vast presence that's being sort of celebrated and dissected and um you know in almost a kind of scientific detail yeah um, so yeah, i think yeah. moby dick was only published was it 20 years later i think Something like that, yeah, yeah. 1851, but, um, and of course the the other parallel I found while I was doing it was with the William Golding book, The Spire. Uh Um, Of course, yeah. Which is about the 
construction, although it's not named, it's based on Salisbury Cathedral, which mm. is opposite the school where he taught. Um, and of course, that there are similar human frailties in the, within a vast church um, in that story. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. With kind of um, lust and, and guilt and all of those kind of things. You mentioned um, you mentioned detail a moment ago. Um, I was wondering, is there any are there any particular details in the cover which won't necessarily strike the reader uh, immediately, but which are particularly important to you as a as a designer, or that you're particularly well? I, I, I think not so much this cover because it's a kind of panoramic view. Um, I, well, maybe having Quasimodo on the on the rooftop. And the shop itself being there, mm-hmm. um, I think I've, I've gone into some detail with the restaurants next to the shop, but I think it, it's just this is more of a celebration. But mm-hmm. other projects that we've done subsequently have, have given me more scope to throw these Easter eggs at it. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> and we'll leave that point there. Yes, 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 <laughs> And just um, talking about the experience of then uh, drawing it. So did you, I mean, because it's firstly, it's quite a uh, an unusual view. Like, you know, we're looking down from over the cathedral. So there's no there's no building in Paris that could give you that view. How did you, like from a pure technical perspective, how, well, did, I you, think that, how that's, did you that's, that's, that? that's a really interesting question because I I mentioned um, earlier that I, I, still do a lot of illustrated maps um, mm. and I'm often commissioned by people with um, big estates and big country houses to do aerial views of their estates and although I still haven't bought the drone that everybody suggests that I, I buy um, <laughs> I'm, I'm used to walking around at ground level and drawing as if I'm I'm up in the air mm. which is a, a, a slightly odd um, skill to acquire um so I, I just applied that in this instance i mean obviously there were some aerial photographs but not not of the right the right view but i i, I just sort of walk, walked around and yeah from looking up at the cathedral i was able to imagine myself looking down on it let's um let's talk a little bit about the the, the experience and the timeline because what um, our listeners may not realise is that this is a project which has been in the works for many a year, and in fact, you did the the early drawings for this before Notre Dame burned in uh, in twenty nineteen. Uh, has has that event? And I, obviously, you've been back uh, to the bookshop several times since, and you've worked on other projects with us. So you've you've been in the presence of the cathedral. Has the experience of working on this? from the sort of before the fire epoch had a you know left a kind of a, a mark on you well i i think it's 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 also coincided with all, all sorts of other momentous events like lockdown and of course and and brexit to a lesser lesser degree um so i th- i think i must have done the drawings for this did this particular drawing and must have been 2018 um mm. And I think the the way the fire affects me um, and still still does is that I, I think I, I visited the bookshop twice that year. I came once mm. in, I think it was March to, to to write, and I think that was I had the drawing then, and I presented the original to you as a, a thank you for um, putting me up, and I'm I'm thrilled that it's still hanging in the in the office there. Um, and I, I came back in 
June that year to um, to draw the facade for your mm-hmm. tote bags. Um, and of course, the fire happened in the in mid April that year, so yeah. it, it, the cathedral burnt between my two visits. Um, but I, I can remember my vividly watching the footage on TV, um, and of course, most of the footage we were getting was was aerial footage from from mm-hmm. helicopters. Of course, and yeah. of course, having already, <laughs> as we've just described, occupied that space and developed this kind of which I'd probably rather pretentiously call an, an, an intimate relationship with the upper surface of the of the cathedral, with the the the, the flesh in the middle. Um, seeing that, well, I mean, seeing seeing such a um, a, a landmark building, an old landmark mm-hmm. building, on fire is um, brutal anyway. But when it's mm-hmm. one that I'd so recently forged a very personal connection with, because when you're when you're when you're drawing a building. Or drawing anything, you you spend a lot of time looking at it, and mm-hmm. you you see the structure in a very different way. It's the same way as when I, if I go, um, if I'm sketching outdoors, it's so different from taking a photograph because when whenever I look back at my sketchbooks, I can I can smell the food that was wafting from a nearby restaurant, right. or you know, it's a, such a personal connection with a space, mm-hmm. um, and. That's why the the fire affected me so deeply, because Mm -hmm. of course it's and it made my feeling about this drawing and the cover much more, Mm -hmm. much more profound as well. I felt a much more profound connection with the piece of work because at the time when it was happening and for a while after, they weren't sure whether the building is going to survive. Right. And of course, that's one of the the theme of the book is the the fear that this. fabulous structure was going to be left to decay or worse mm-hmm. and of course you made a return visit to to the bookstore uh, a couple of months ago uh yes. to, to very generously so to sign the the limited edition print of uh of the, the the cover art could you talk a little bit about how that felt how because obviously we we set you up in our library at the window, looking over the cathedral with uh, this stack of, of prints of this beautiful cover design that you that you had done for us and that you were signing, uh, was that quite a was that quite an emotional moment for you to to make this return journey after after so much time? I mean, away? It, was, it was quite emotional on, on on several levels because I think I uh, at the time I, I was the, the the first person to stay in the new writers' room as well, absolutely, which yeah. felt like a, an, an honour in it in itself um and it was a slightly daunting um task because there, there were there were so many prints and people said to me isn't, isn't your arm going to get tired signing so many prints <laughs> but you know, just again it was just being there sitting out looking looking at looking at Notre Dame signing my pictures mm-hmm. of it it was um yeah I, I, I felt very proud and when um, yeah people will will note in the pictures that by happy chance my the, the shirt I was wearing was the same the same peachy tone as the, uh, the facade of Notre Dame <laughs> bathed in the late Paris evening sunshine. Well, look, Neil, thank you so much for joining us today to discuss uh, this beautiful illustration. And thank you so much for, for doing it and for making the print available to uh, to friends of Shakespeare and Company. All that's left for me to say, Neil, is thank you so much for joining us today. It's always a pleasure, Adam. Thank you so much. Oh, he's so lovely. So good. He, he really, really is.
Now, as Neil just mentioned in that conversation, and as I trailed in the beginning of this podcast, we have prepared a very special bundle uh, for, for, for the holidays, available exclusively from Shakespeare and Company from our website, or if you're dropping by the store, we're going to be selling it on the shop floor. We have produced a limited edition print run of Neil Gower's beautiful design uh, for, the, for the cover. So this is a gorgeous print, hand-signed by Neil, and stamped with the bookstore bookshop's hallmark. Now, this is a very limited edition. It's available as what we've called the, the Hunchback of Notre Dame bundle with a copy of the book for just 55 euros. Um, I've put the link to this bundle in the, the show notes to this episode. Um, and one thing we should also say is that all of the revenues from this bundle are going straight back into Friends of Shakespeare and Company. Now, Friends of Shakespeare and Company, as some of you may know, was founded when the bookstore was in a certain amount of financial difficulty a couple of years ago to support all of the non-profit making elements of the bookstore life. So whether that be the free events, the free podcasts, the publishing activities, the Tumbleweed program, the Writers in Residence program, all of these are supported by Friends of Shakespeare and Company. So not only will you get a beautiful edition, exclusive Shakespeare and Company edition of The Hunchback of Notre Dame, a gorgeous print uh, signed by Neil Gower, limited edition, but you'll also be supporting uh, Friends of Shakespeare and Company, which keeps a lot of the side of the bookstore that we know you all love going. Now, one thing I thought that was really interesting there and that we haven't talked about yet, but obviously this would have an impact on you, is that this project started before the fire. So obviously the people we knew of were aware of Notre Dame as this, this monument, but probably hadn't thought about it a great deal before 2019, whereas suddenly it's on every television screen all over the world. It's on the front of every newspaper and it's at the yeah. forefront of people's minds. Could you talk a little bit about how the experience of working on a book that is so more than intricately connected to the cathedral, just about the cathedral itself, was impacted by this, this world historical event? Yeah, I mean, I suppose it's, uh, there's two ways I can respond to that, which is one sort of personally and one professionally. Um, and I think I'll, I'll address the professionally first. Um, when I started researching for, when I read the book and then I started researching for the introduction and just for my understanding, it became immediately apparent that there just are not a lot of texts in English about the history of, uh, of the cathedral. I mean, I just assumed there'd be some 200-page illustrated yeah, yeah, book in, in English for the general reader talking about it because, again, it's it's number one tourist destination in Paris. Like, does even the cathedral have this kind of book? And um, the answer now is I don't know. No, I don't think so because <laughs> I did go to the top. I did go to the top of the cathedral once um, in preparation for working on this project too. So, uh, so I was really excited because as... I was reading texts in French, like I had bought some books um, on the history of the cathedral that are written in French. I had one that's very academic architectural history of the cathedral and um, the renovations of 1860. Uh, and so I was really excited when I was working on this. I was like, oh, we can present something to people that they've not encountered before, yeah. probably haven't encountered before. Um, and then there was the fire. And again, I'm speaking about this on the professional end of things. There was the fire, and within two months, there were 10 new books on the right. history. <laughs> so I feel like I'd spent months and months and months doing this research, and 
really excited to present new information to readers. And suddenly, it's like, as you said, it was on every television. Now, everybody knew this, (laughs) (laughs) knew this history. Um, So I'm just laughing because it put me in mind of, it was a little bit like when at the start of the pandemic, like everyone became like an amateur epidemiologist. There was a time when everyone sort of had their little nugget of facts about the cathedral, which they would share with you. And that they, yeah, it was just sort of, it became a thing. Yeah, and and also too, a lot of what was understood about before was really a myth. Uh-huh. You know, things yes. that that weren't true. Like Victor Hugo did not write Notre Dame de Paris in the cathedral. Right. You know, there's there was a tour that was given in the '80s, and and somebody would walk people to this little chamber and say, "And this is where Hugo <laughs> wrote <laughs> the Hunchback of Notre Dame." Uh, and so, I, you know, I, in that line of like research and books and editing, so you, and with study journalism. So I like this idea of research and, and discovery and, and sharing. Um, and then I'd say on, on the other end of it, the more personal end of it, I mean, I, I can say I had the experience that a lot of people here had. Um, I saw, I was, I came out of the bookshop right when the fire was starting, when it was still unknown what it was. They were just pushing people past, um, out the doors of Notre Dame and, and to get home from the bookshop I literally walk you know 10 feet in front of the front doors before now the parvis is closed of course during the renovations at that time you just walk directly in front and they were pushing people out and by the time I crossed the river and was in front of Hotel de Ville you could see the smoke starting to rise and it was the strangest thing and everybody's just standing around I was standing next to four police officers and they too were just looking and and obviously nothing has gone out yet because the police officers are just curious nothing has gone out yet about what has happened um when i was getting when people are getting pushed out of the cathedral some tourists were fighting back they were saying no but this is my last day in paris you know (laughs) it was really unclear what was happening um and by the time i i'll say i did not wait (laughs) for an up close look at what was what was going to happen um because who you know, it could be anything, and given what had happened in Paris in recent years. So uh, by the time I got, it's just like 15 minutes later, and got to where I live, which is on a little bit of a, a hill in Paris, and, and looks down into the center of the, the into the city center, there was so much smoke. I mean, it happened from just seeing one little wisp of smoke to 10 or 15 minutes later, just a huge, huge fire, and. You know, I think, you know, people were, people described it in a lot of different ways. And one thing, now it all just seems grim to recount, but it really was like watching something. Someone said this, now I pause to say it, but it's like watching a beloved pet, something happened to a beloved pet. I mean, there's really a close affinity that I had. I know people in the shop had, Parisians, other people who visited um, whether it be for religious reasons, whether because it's been a gathering spot um, in times of crisis for so many, or tragedy um, for you know centuries, um, and by the, so in the morning when I came in and and I had to get off at Hotel de Ville and make a grand tour around the islands in order to, to cross the Seine, and people were just lined up shoulder to shoulder and really like almost everyone was weeping and I felt the same as soon as I my eyes caught on this skeleton you know this like smoked out skeleton I really surprised myself by weeping as Mm -hmm. if it were someone 
I knew and even to this day, like when you and I sat down to talk about it, there was this wistful thought in my head of, oh, what if we could hear the bells of Notre Dame? Because yeah. that's something we lived with for so long and we don't have now. And it yeah. is like, it was like a heartbeat mm. of the city. And yeah, so, you know, I, I tell you this sort of glib story about the professional aspects of it, but really it's this, yeah. it's this heart of it, the heart of Paris, um, for over 800 years that really, truly we almost... Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yet for me, because I, I shared so many of those feelings and yet working sort of even sort of peripherally on this project really helped me digest the news as well because one thing that I didn't know about the cathedral before starting to, before reading this book and working on the introduction with you was how many times in the, bu yeah. in the building's history it had fallen into ruin, almost fallen yeah. into ruin, been resurrected, you know, had the, the spire had been destroyed and rebuilt. Yeah. And as in a weird sort of way, as catastrophic as the fire was and as catastrophic as it felt, seeing it inscribed in this 900-year history in a way made it easier for me to, to accept in a way and to believe that this was another stage rather than the end or something yeah. definitive. I think once we knew it was gonna stand yes that that changed things and it is true because I did know that going during the fire and you know immediately after as some listeners might know there, there was a big controversy about how uh the cathedral was going to be renovated mm. was it going to be made to look exactly like it did before or were they going to put a swimming pool a swimming that was my favorite proposition. no one said that did they <laughs> I knew they wanted to put like a green one of those um green spaces yes, on the top yeah. and solar panels you know which obviously i've just seen solar panels <laughs> some, some people weren't happy with the idea of solar panels on the roof although there were bees and i assume there will be yeah. bee colonies again yeah so so much of the cathedral that people love like the chimeras the spires all of that was put up in uh 1860 mm -hmm. when it was renovated also very importantly which you haven't said renovated in response to this novel yes <laughs> um which was what Hugo set out to do when he started writing the book in, in the 1830s. The cathedral was in total disrepair, um, and he wrote this book in part to bring attention to this medieval architecture in the middle of the center of, of Paris. And you know, it was a success because people loved the book. Mm -hmm. It was panned by critics, yeah. but... <laughs> People, As a lot of the best books are. Yeah. <laughs> but people loved it um, and came from the French countryside, came from England, came from other countries, all wanting to see this like incredible fairy tale like place where, um, you know, with Quasimodo and Esmeralda and Claude Frollo. Uh, and when they got here, it was just, you know, really all the statuary um, had been taken down during the French Revolution because uh, the statues that uh, were in front of the front doors had been taken down and even decapitated during the French yes. Revolution <laughs> because people thought that they were statues of kings when, in fact, they were statues of biblical figures. And as a side note, people can go and see these pieces that were discovered recently um, in the Musée de, de Cluny. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so the, the cathedral was really not the cathedral that people know today. And because all these people, essentially tourists from the countryside, other countries came to see Notre Dame, it uh, encouraged the 
French government, um, the Parisian government, uh, to invest money in the restoration yeah, yeah, yeah. of the cathedral, which happened in 1860, uh, in the 1860s, under uh, the direction of a man named uh, Violet Le Duc. Mm-hmm. And in fact, funnily enough, when the bookstore opened, it, the cathedral hadn't exactly fallen into disrepair again. But it was, I remember seeing photos of in mid-set, mid-20th century, and it was black, in fact. The kind of the beautiful white stone that we see today was actually, I believe, uh, uh, to, part of a cleaning up project that took place in the late 60s. I think it? in like 1960, I want to say 1963, but I think it's uh-huh. like mid-60s. And it was um, under the direction of André Gide when he was of the course. cultural minister. Yeah, yeah. And that really created uh, a huge controversy as well. And, and one can see if you read books or poems about Notre Dame pre, you know, 1963, it's, you know, isn't it called like the old gray lady? Yes. Or, you yeah, know, yeah. but now, of course, it's <laughs> glimmering white. And for those who, people who are listening who aren't in Paris, I, I'm sure you've noticed that after, while they're working on the renovations, every time I look at the cathedral, I'm like, it just seems to get wider and wider. Mm. So <laughs> I think it's also getting a rebuffing. <laughs> And so to finish, Krista, we talked a lot about the the book itself, the story, the history. Um, and so some people might be asking, sure, but why should I read this book today? What is it about this uh, this this book from a couple of hundred years ago that talks about you know something from six centuries ago that is relevant to to modern readers? Well, I mean, the the easiest answer is it's a great book. Uh-huh. You know, it, it really is. It's um, it's wonderfully alive. I don't know if you had that experience. It's it's wonderfully present as as you're reading it, both in terms of the narrative that we know. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's a scene in it um, that's kind of <laughs> there's a scene in that involves a, a certain amount of sex, and um, it feels incredibly contemporary. Mm-hmm. And the male character is trying to persuade the female character. To have sex with him, and I laughed out. I laughed out loud because I was reading it. I was like, "These are all the techniques um, that that a person might recognize from today, including the man is saying to the woman, "Oh yes, well we'll have sex now." And oh, I can't wait to introduce you to my family, and then we'll go on a trip here. And he's doing all the the future planning. You know, yeah. I was like, "This is out of like Cosmo magazine, like right? You know, like <laughs> what what red flags to watch out for?" You know, and here it is in this in this text and it's incredibly as you're reading it both uh, funny and believable and persuasive mm. and and you go so good at, at drawing those things mm. and even the character of you know I, I might have mentioned I didn't mention this before but I should have the character of Esmeralda is not at all what I anticipated mm. I imagined a beauty and the beast story uh-huh. with just this young lovely gorgeous teenage girl who's you know being followed around by Quasimodo but in fact, she's quite a complicated character. Mm-hmm. Like she's not an angel. Yes. And and while her fate in the book is absolutely terrible mm-hmm. um, and undeserved, obviously, um, she herself is. She has her own agency. Mm-hmm. She makes decisions that um, seem ill-advised, like in continuing to pursue a romantic uh, relationship with Phoebus and her devotion to him. Um, that all seem to be born out of the fact that she finds him quite good looking. Mm-hmm. You know, so she, uh, Hugo intentionally draws her as this more shallow, again, complex character. So just on this narrative level, I think even if it were written today, it would be interesting um, to people to read. And then, of course, on top of it, 
for anyone who, who likes Paris or Parisian history um, or is interested in the city, it's absolutely so rich mm -hmm. in the gorgeous writing um, about the city and also in sharing some of its history. And I know you really responded to that, the, the first 200 pages. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like, as, as somebody, you know, who has, I think, read quite a lot about the history of Paris and has been interested in the way that Paris has preserved its history and really wears its history on its sleeve in a way that perhaps mm. a city like London doesn't in quite the same way. And, yeah, that was complete catnip for me. Like, it is really... Uh, a sort of uh, it's, it's a revelation to sort of how Paris has kind of held certain things together and preserved certain certain of its elements over over the century and and yeah and and and, and literally I did take to the streets with it and saw mm -hmm. the the various elements and things which still existed today and that's uh, I guess another argument for 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 why you should read it today yeah. is because it's actually a really good guide to the city. Absolutely, I mean I see the city so differently having read it and knowing like how long things have been there and what functions they've served and and continue to serve mm -hmm. um yeah i mean just knowing like all the places the administrative centers of paris have been there you know for 800 or more years are all mm -hmm. still in the same place yeah 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 well look krista this is all we've got time for um i get feeling we could go on for hours about this <laughs> this wonderful book um, but we will we will spare our listeners so just a reminder that the Hunchback of Notre Dame bundle is available uh, on our website so you will find the link um, at the top of the show notes to to this episode for the beautiful uh, limited edition Neil Gower print along with our, our very own splendid edition of the of the book all revenues once again go to Friends of Shakespeare and Company um, Krista, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks so much, Adam, and thanks everybody for listening. Thank you for listening to the Shakespeare and Company podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, it would be great if you could help us spread the word by reviewing or rating us in your favourite app, or just by sending the link to your friends. And don't forget, if you'd like even more from Shakespeare and Company, you can subscribe now through Apple Podcasts or Patreon for just €3 Euro a month. Links to both are available in the show notes to this episode. production of this podcast is all done in-house here at Shakespeare and Company Paris. All music is by Alex Fryman, whose album Play It Gentle is available to buy or stream wherever you listen. We'll be back soon. Until then, take care and thanks again for listening. <laughs>